Section 2 of Some Passages of the Life and Death of the Right Honourable John, Earl of Rochester, by Gilbert Burnett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I now turn to those parts of this narrative wherein I myself bore some share, and which I am to deliver upon the observations I made after a long and free conversation with him for some months. I was not long in his company when he told me he should treat me with more freedom than he had ever used to men of my profession. He would conceal none of his principles from me, but lay his thoughts open without any disguise, nor would he do it to maintain debate or show his wit, but plainly tell me what stuck with him, and protested to me that he was not so engaged to his old maxims as to resolve not to change, but that if he could be convinced he would choose rather to be of another mind." he said he would impartially weigh what i should lay before him and tell me freely when it did convince him and when it did not he expressed this disposition of mind to me in a matter so frank that i could not but believe him and be much taken with his way of discourse so we entered into almost all the parts of natural and revealed religion and of morality he seemed pleased and in a great measure satisfied with what i said upon many of these heads and though our freest conversation was when we were alone, yet upon several occasions other persons were witnesses to it. I understood from many hands that my company was not distasteful to him, and that the subjects about which we talked most were not unacceptable, and he expressed himself often not ill-pleased with many things I said to him, and particularly when I visited him in his last sickness, so that I hoped it may not be altogether unprofitable to publish the substance of those matters about which we argued so freely, with our reasoning upon them. And perhaps what had some effects on him may be not altogether ineffectual upon others. I followed him with such arguments as I saw were most likely to prevail with him, and my not urging other reasons proceeded not from any distrust I had of their force, but from the necessity of using those that were most proper for him. He was then in a low state of health, and seemed to be slowly recovering of a great disease. He was in the milk diet, and apt to fall into hectical fits. Any accident weakened him, so that he thought he could not live long, and when he went from London he said he believed he should never come to town more. Yet during his being in town he was so well that he went often abroad and had great vivacity of spirit, so that he was under no such decay as either darkened or weakened his understanding, nor was he any way troubled with the spleen or vapours or under the power of melancholy. What he was then, compared to what he had been formerly, I could not so well judge, who had seen him but twice before. Others have told me they perceived no difference in his parts. This I mention more particularly, that it may not be thought that melancholy or the want of spirits made him more inclined to receive any impressions, for indeed I never discovered any such thing in him. Having thus opened the way to the heads of our discourse, I shall next mention them. The three chief things we talked about were morality, natural religion, and revealed religion, Christianity in particular. For morality, he confessed, he saw the necessity of it, both for the government of the world and for the preservation of health, life, and friendship, and was very much ashamed of his former practices, rather because he had made himself a beast, 
and had brought pain and sickness on his body and had suffered much in his reputation than from any deep sense of a supreme being or another state but so far this went with him that he resolved firmly to change the course of his life which he thought he should affect by the study of philosophy and had not a few no less solid than pleasant notions concerning the folly and madness of vice but he confessed he had no remorse for his past actions as offences against god but only as injuries to himself and to mankind upon this subject i showed him the defects of philosophy for reforming the world that it was a matter of speculation which but few either had the leisure or the capacity to inquire into but the principle that must reform mankind must be obvious to every man's understanding that philosophy in matters of morality beyond the great lines of our duty had no very certain fixed rule but in the lesser offices and instances of our duty went much by the fancies of men and customs of nations and consequently could not have authority enough to bear down the propensities of nature appetite or passion for which i instanced in these two points the one was about that maxim of the stoics to extirpate all sort of passion and concern for any thing that take it by one hand seemed desirable because if it could be accomplished it would make all the accidents of life easy but i think it cannot because nature after all our striving against it will still return to itself yet on the other hand it dissolved the bonds of nature and friendship and slackened industry which will move but dully without an inward heat and if it delivered a man from many troubles it deprived him of the chief pleasures of life which rise from friendship the other was concerning the restraint of pleasure how far that was to go upon this he told me the two maxims of his morality then were that he should do nothing to the hurt of any other or that he might prejudice his own health and he thought that all pleasure when it did not interfere with these was to be indulged as the gratification of our natural appetites it seemed unreasonable to imagine these were put into a man only to be restrained or curbed to such a narrowness this he applied to the free use of wine and women to this i answered that if appetites being natural was an argument for the indulging them then the revengeful might as well allege it for murder and the covetous for stealing whose appetites are no less keen on those objects and yet it is acknowledged that these appetites ought to be curbed if the difference is urged from the injury that another person receives the injury is as great if a man's wife is defiled or his daughter corrupted and it is impossible for a man to let his appetites loose to vagrant lusts and not to transgress in these particulars so there was no curing the disorders that must rise from thence but by regulating these appetites and why should we not as well think that god intended our brutish and sensual appetites should be governed by our reason as that the fierceness of beasts should be managed and tamed by the wisdom and for the use of man so that it is no real absurdity to grant that appetites were put into men on purpose to exercise their reason in the restraint and government of them which to be able to do ministers a higher and more lasting pleasure to a man than to give them their full scope and range and if other rules of philosophy be observed such as the avoiding those objects that stir passion 
nothing raises higher passions than ungoverned lust nothing darkens the understanding and depresses a man's mind more nor is anything managed with more frequent returns of other immoralities such as oaths and imprecations which are only intended to compass what is desired the expense that is necessary to maintain these irregularities makes a man false in his other dealings all this he freely confessed was true upon which i urged that if it was reasonable for a man to regulate his appetite in things which he knew were hurtful to him was it not reasonable for god to prescribe a regulating of those appetites whose unrestrained course did produce such mischievous effects that it could not be denied but doing to others what we would have others do unto us was a just rule those men then that knew how extreme sensible they themselves would be of the dishonour of their families in the case of their wives or daughters must needs condemn themselves for doing that which they could not bear from another and if the peace of mankind and the entire satisfaction of our whole life ought to be one of the chief measures of our actions then let all the world judge whether a man that confines his appetite and lives contented at home is not much happier than those that let their desires run after forbidden objects the thing being granted to be better in itself than the question falls between the restraint of appetite in some instances and the freedom of a man's thoughts the soundness of his health his application to affairs with the easiness of his whole life whether the one is not to be done before the other as to the difficulty of such a restraint though it is not easy to be done when a man allows himself many liberties in which it is not possible to stop yet those who avoid the occasions that may kindle these impure flames and keep themselves well employed find the victory and dominion over them no such impossible or hard matter as may seem at first view so that though the philosophy and morality of this point were plain yet there is not strength enough in that principle to subdue nature and appetite upon this i urged that morality could not be a strong thing unless a man were determined by a law within himself for if he only measured himself by decency or the laws of the land this would teach him only to use such caution in his ill practices that they should not break out too visibly but would never carry him to an inward and universal probity that virtue was of so complicated a nature that unless a man came entirely within its discipline he could not adhere steadfastly to any one precept for vices are often made necessary supports to one another that this cannot be done either steadily or with any faction unless the mind does inwardly comply with and delight in the dictates of virtue and that could not be effected except a man's nature were internally regenerated and changed by a higher principle till that came about corrupt nature would be strong and philosophy but feeble especially when it struggled with such appetites or passions as were much kindled or deeply rooted in the constitution of one's body this he said sounded to him like enthusiasm or canting he had no notion of it and so could not understand it he comprehended the dictates of reason and philosophy in which as the mind became much conversant there would soon follow as he believed a greater easiness in obeying its precepts i told him on the other hand that all his speculations of philosophy would not serve him in any stead to the reforming of his nature and life till he applied himself to god for inward assistances he was certain that the impressions made in his reason governed him as they were lively presented to him but these are so apt to slip out of our memory and we so apt to turn our thoughts from them 
and that sometimes the contrary impressions are so strong that let a man set up a reasoning in his mind against them he finds that celebrated saying of the poet i see what is better and approve it but follow what is worse to be all that philosophy will amount to whereas those who upon such occasions apply themselves to god by earnest prayer feel a disengagement from such impressions and themselves endued with a power to resist them so that those bonds which formerly held them fall off this he said must be the effect of a heat in nature it was only the strong diversion of the thoughts that gave the seeming victory and he did not doubt but if one could turn to a problem in euclid or to write a copy of verses it would have the same effect to this i answered that if such methods did only divert the thoughts there might be some force in what he said but if they not only drove out such inclinations but begat impressions contrary to them and brought men into a new disposition and habit of mind then he must confess there was somewhat more than a diversion in these changes which were brought on our mind by true devotion i added that reason and experience were the things that determined our persuasions that experience without reason may be thought the delusion of our fancy so reason without experience had not so convincing an operation but these two meeting together must needs give a man all the satisfaction he can desire he could not say it was unreasonable to believe that the supreme being might make some thoughts stir in our minds with more or less force as it pleased especially the force of these motions being for most part according to the impression that was made on our brains which that power that directed the whole frame of nature could make grow deeper as it pleased it was also reasonable to suppose god a being of such goodness that he would give his assistance to such as desired it for though he might upon some greater occasions in an extraordinary manner turn some people's mind yet since he had endued man with a faculty of reason it is fit that men should employ that as far as they could and beg his assistance which certainly they can do all this seemed reasonable and at least probable now good men who felt upon their frequent applications to god in prayer a freedom from those ill impressions that formerly subdued them an inward love to virtue and true goodness an easiness and delight in all the parts of holiness which was fed and cherished in them by a seriousness in prayer and did languish as that went off had as real a perception of an inward strength in their minds that did rise and fall with true devotion as they perceived the strength of their bodies increased or abated according as they had or wanted good nourishment after many discourses upon this subject he still continued to think all was the effect of fancy he said that he understood nothing of it but acknowledged that he thought they were very happy whose fancies were under the power of such impressions since they had somewhat on which their thoughts rested and centred but when i saw him in his last sickness he then told me he had another sense of what we had talked concerning prayer and inward assistances this subject led us to discourse of god and of the notion of religion in general End of section two.